Robert Downey Jr., actor, entrepreneur, founder of Footprint Coalition, Rachel Croper, science liaison, impact advisor, managing director of FootprintCoalition.org. Hey, oh, welcome back to the Downstream channel. That's Rachel Croper. I am Robert Downey Jr. This is episode three. It's going uh, very well. Thank you for watching. Tell a friend. We're back. Well, I'm back. Technically, you're not back. I'm back east. Yeah, yeah, you're back in Venice. I'm back here with this wild and crazy doll thing that it looks like you called Silent Bob. And we wear the same glasses now. Oh, yeah. By the way, oh, I see. Those are what? Blue? Blue light blockers. See, I'm so old. All I remember was blue blockers. Yeah, but they were helping you fall what? asleep, this particular one. So there's a real chance that I could just fall asleep midstream. So um, you're running this popsicle stand this week. Yep. I'm in control of the subject. Thrill me. All right, I'll give you a couple of clues, actually. Who is your favorite architect? Gaudi. Mm, good one. Okay. What about your favorite building? Uh, the Chrysler Building in Manhattan. Which is not a Gaudi building, if I remember. But no, nice but my grandpa did the glass for it. Oh, tremendous. You know what I mean? So I feel closer. Yeah, that's great. And what about, what about a favorite place in the world? Hanalei Bay, Hawaii. Got to be. Ooh, nice. Very fun and ecological. Uh, I'm going to take a wild guess and say the subject is how to win a second-class cabin on a princess cruise. Not exactly. Very far from it, actually. Uh, but I will do the box reveal if you're ready. That's a uh, dodecahedron. Mm -hmm. Oh, tiki tiki timbo no sarimbo, harry peri 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 pimbo. <laughs> yes, it does. Oh, that say was one that. of my Christmas uh, uh, art <laughs> projects that I do. But wait a minute, are we talking about geometry, sacred geometry, uh, something with design? Something geo. All right, something with design that is geo. So it must be geo design. AI side, please define. Geodesign is a set of concepts and methods used to collaboratively design and realize the optimal solution for spatial challenges in built and natural environments, utilizing all available techniques and data in an integrated process. This is more about how do we leave a light footprint? How do we design for better uh, interaction with the rest of nature in our future? Yep, and how yep, do we yep. make things that sustain ourselves um, in a healthy way? So it does relate to all of our listeners' lives. It's a little heady, but we're going to make it understandable and we're gonna have people excited about uh about how this works for them um quotes of the day okay here i go so like i told you i'm not really a nerd for architects like i don't know exactly who did what but i do like a little zaha hadid so here's my quote people think that the most appropriate building is a rectangle because that's typically the best way of using space. But is that to say that landscape is a waste of space? The world is not a rectangle. No house should ever be on a hill or on anything. It should be of the hill belonging to it. Hill and house should be together, each the happier for the other. Frank Lloyd Wright. Now, you know, it's interesting because I've been approached several times to play him uh, on screen, but really for the first time recently, I was looking at some pictures of him, more like when he was in his 60s. I'm starting to think maybe Rachel did fall asleep. She said that those glasses made you tired. 
AI site, wake her up. Oh, I love waking people up. Why'd you wake up? Uh, sorry. Hi. That's all right. I was just talking, uh, just talking about one of my next roles. Mm. I know that bores you. Yeah. Wow. Sorry. I'm sure it's super interesting, though. A uh, so. little uh, interstitial history. Yes. Yes. Since the very first city developed in roughly 2000 BC in what's now Iraq, humans have relied on nature for cues on where and how to build communities. In the 20th century, no architect is more famous for practicing geodesign than Frank Lloyd Wright, even if Wright never thought of it that way. Wright pioneered what he called organic architecture, which used natural surroundings to inspire his building designs. His building, Falling Water, may be the most beautiful example of geodesign in the U.S., made before the term was even coined. By incorporating the natural landscape, the waterfalls, streams, and boulders surrounding the Pennsylvania home into the design, Wright used some of the same design principles behind those ancient ziggurats for his singularly famous work. All right, sister, we have the subject. Who is our first guest? Your mentor. Bran Farron. How do you even describe this gentleman? You know what? We're going to leave it to the professionals. AI side. Bram Farron is the former president of research and development and creative technology for Walt Disney, as well as a designer and technologist working at the intersection of entertainment, product development, engineering, architecture, and the sciences. There he is. The man, the beard, the legend. Bran Farron in the flesh. Shocking, isn't it? Rachel... I'm too nervous because he casts a long shadow. Would you please ask Bran the first question? Well, I think what we're going to try to get to over the course of this is just why embark on geodesign? Like what exactly is the point and why is it urgent that people focus their attention on this? You know, geodesign is a rather new, uh, somewhere at a hybrid between science and art, which is why I think it appeals to me. Uh, It's a tool. It's a methodology. And once you think about it, it's completely obvious, uh, which is why you say, well, why didn't I think of this? And (laughs) I got introduced to it because I was asked to be the keynote on the first conference on geodesign. And that for me was interesting because it occurred to me while accepting, I should probably figure out what it is. Geography is about two things. It's about spatial coordinates and it's about time. You could call it geotemporality, putting those two things mm-hmm. together. But GIS is about how do you quantify that? Geographic Information System, GIS, is a form of mapping that applies geographic science with tools for collaboration and understanding. What geodesign does is add to it what's known as modeling and simulation. And modeling simulation is the ability to use com- computers, and sometimes it could be a desktop or something in your hand. Other times it can be supercomputers, cloud-based computers, staggering computing power, to basically say, there's something I'm interested in looking at, show me what that is. And then the bigger notion is, so I can design cities better or our world better. I think we should have for the United States relative to ecology, the environment and such, a 250 year plan. What geodesign provides is a framework. And I look at it, yes, it's about computation, it's about modeling and sim, but I actually look at it as a creative tool, much like the invention of animation, right? Mm -hmm. Animation all of a sudden said, 
because of this phenomenology known as persistence of vision, we can sit back and do a series of drawings. And if we change them rapidly enough, they will appear to the eye to be alive. As your job is to see the future, how do you see this climate emergency playing out? I think we should be very worried about it. And I think when you're dealing with things that can have cataclysmic, definitive, societally altering consequences, that the tendency is to dismiss them because you put them in the category of too hard. Well, I, for one, can't do anything about this, and so I'm going to lead my life. Besides, you know, my house will be underwater in 100 years, and I don't really care. You know, that's one side of it. And the other side is, oh, my God, I have to now get serious about this, and I have to get a car that runs on peanut oil, and I have to start my own peanut farm. But there's probably somewhere else which is called a sensible response to the problem which combines some of both of those plus others, but says, well, what is an actionable plan that we can put in place that has minimum negative impact on society? Because you pay a price for all of this stuff. Now, when it comes to climate change, this is a much bigger problem. And it's easy for people to be dismissive and say, well, the problem is cows. Turns out cow flatulence is a significant contributor of greenhouse gas. So if you either get rid of the cows or you eat less meat or you do this and all of that. And the answer is never that simple. But if it's something where you could get a new condition that it's irreversible, people talk about, you know, we're going to kill the planet. We're not going to kill the planet. It's a rock. It's quite durable. It'll last for a long time. Now, human life on the planet and plants and other things, that's another thing. And some life will continue. So if your concern is just a form of life, the planet will be fine. And it's self-correcting because when enough of us die off, we won't be using so much um, and generating greenhouse gas. So that's the long-term view why you shouldn't worry. I don't particularly ascribe to that school, and I think we should be worried about it a lot. And it's going to require federal policies, because this is not something that individuals can do on your own. Can individuals do things to make a contribution? Of course they can, and they should. Is that going to move the needle or be sufficient? In no way, shape, or form. But this is principally about regulations, about developing new replacement technologies, which don't cause you to suffer great hardship, but just adapt to a slightly different way of doing things. My view on all of this is when you're talking about things that have to do with loss of human life, quality of human life, future of civilization, uh, let's, how about erring on the side of being a bit more safe and conservative? Mm -hmm. At the same time, balance that against economic costs. Well, I think that's what leadership is about. And in a democracy, that's what the voice of the people are about, are deciding what should we be focusing our time, energy, and money on. Let's say Bran Farron gets to design a major metropolitan city. What are some of the uh, inputs, integers, or outcomes that would make it most meaningful to you? I, I think if you're going to design a city today, first of all, you have to acknowledge that people are different than they were 100 years ago. What makes the great cities great is variety and diversity, so that you have uptowns and downtowns, which have very different characters. One of the things that, of course, makes New York City the great livable city it is, is Central Park. Imagine if it were just all buildings and you didn't have Central Park, how different it would be. And so 
uh, how do you, in the design and the architecture, respect light, respect air? Uh, how do you uh, assume that people actually do have to get around? And whether they decide to ride on a bicycle or they want to take the equivalent of a taxi, which might be autonomous, or they go underground in a subway or other combination, uh, the bigger a city gets, the more important it is that people can move without frustrations. The great cities, if you get the structure correct, the architecture, and I mean that not in the sense of architecture about buildings, but architecture about the greater scheme mm -hmm. of how as a system the city works, and it's responsive to the people in it, if you get it right, it's self-correcting. You make a system that's self-correcting and healing, so if you get something wrong, you already have a process in place for how to correct it. Make sure we don't do that again. Okay, should we do a couple of these rapid fires? Yes, please. All you, Rach. Okay, are you choosing to travel to cities that you like, or are you choosing to travel into nature? I've heard of a vacation, but I'm not entirely sure that I've ever experienced one. Um, I, you know, my view is I love the great cities. I love civilization. I love great food. I love works of art that I see in the great museums. Mm -hmm. um, I love the spirit of the city, the vibe in the streets, how it varies from one neighborhood to another, the character. At the same time, I love exploration. Go out in the middle of nowhere, see if there's some rock you can stand on, admire the view, and ask yourself, has any human ever stood on that rock before? I mean, that gives you a sense that in this modern day world where things are moving at the speed of knowledge that on the other hand some things actually don't change and are stable and you can anchor your beliefs emotionally spiritually conceptually in both of those worlds yeah okay who's a better inventor you or tony stark <laughs> well i i bow my hat to the greater wisdom what's the project you're most proud of uh, i can do that in one sentence the next one okay good <laughs> and what's an invention you wish you'd come up with um, the rocket was probably one of the greatest inventions because uh, what it did was enable the first steps to the most important event, arguably, in the history of civilization, which was leaving this planet and setting a foot on the moon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, you can talk about anything you do here, but the idea that you actually did that, that for uh, since the beginning of pre-human people looked at that thing called the moon and did then we actually went there as a first step to mars or as a first step to the other i, I would say um that would have been not a bad contribution mr goddard and you could argue um, some chinese pyrotechnic inventors earlier yeah oh that was awesome thanks for joining us on the downstream channel mr farron we'll be checking back and asking you the uh the tough questions again real soon adios give everyone See you a soon. hug Well, Rachel, I know that you fell asleep, but I forgot to put on my headphones. And I'll tell you why. I'm having such a good hair day. I don't want to let go. Um, shall we go into our intro segment for our next guest? Yes. Okay. In the latter half of the 20th century, computing tools let architects, urban planners, and designers think through how geography could inform design. The digital maps that these researchers created now form the backbone 
for an entire system of information that's mapped a good chunk of the world. Our next guest is the founder and president of the wildly innovative company ESRI, E-S-R-I. It's at the heart of this digital geo design concept. He is Jack Dangermond. Welcome, sir. Nice to see you again. So we're talking about geo design today. And That's the great. concept of geodesign has been around for centuries, but of course, your work is really important and crucial to this field. So what's the big deal? Tell us the whole thing. You and I, all of us, all three of us know that our world is in trouble. Actually, if we look at climate change, we look at the loss of biodiversity, we look at the overpopulation of the world in many dimensions, uh, we got a lot of problems to solve. And geodesign is actually this amazing technology and also science platform that allows people to interactively design things on top of geographic science, uh, the science of our world. The challenges of climate change and loss of biodiversity, I mean, they are mission critical for all of us. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think Robert is, I, I want you to put one of those masks on and you know, use all of your best AI and, and uh, visualization technology to help designers. I mean, that's kind of the way I want to lead into this. And uh, so, yeah, technology and science helping designers create a more sustainable future. That's that's the big deal. Uh, Brand Farron had made an introduction. We've had several conversations and we're exploring in the initial stages of where we could possibly overlap with what the Footprint Coalition is doing. But then COVID happened. And the easiest way for me to explain to the layman why ESRI is within them and around them and already something that they're utilizing is when those Johns Hopkins maps were coming up to show us where it was spreading, it was using your technology. Now, the origin story of how you came to be sitting, where you find yourself at these crossroads of backstage at the world and the events right now, I think is fascinating. And would you mind telling us a little bit about that? So I think of COVID as a big wave that's affected the world. But the, what people don't quite realize is that climate change is another, mm-hmm. is another, I think, bigger wave. And we need, to, we need to stand up and get everybody to realize that these other big waves that are coming are actually more impactful to our future. There's no, there's sort of no, people say there's no vaccine for climate change or, or the loss of biodiversity. And so geodesign is not just mapping Geodesign is taking these scientific layers of information and then equipping people who actually make geographic decisions uh, with the tools that allow them, for example, to preserve uh, open space or pick the right optimum location for things. Uh, That's basically what it is. It's like sketching on a piece of paper, Mm -hmm. except you overlay the little sketch on top of the layers of data and you understand the impacts of your idea you know how much is it going to cost what is the environmental footprint uh, is it compatible with the neighborhoods and the people who live in them? you know it's not about you know, put, putting a freeway right through a particular neighborhood and ruining the neighborhood okay this is, allows you to sketch out these ideas and understand the footprint of what human action is uh, beforehand how do you find you know this geo design tool being then implemented into people actually? Is it policy mainly? Is it, you know, what are the things that you then prompt folks to do once they know the issue? The tools that we build are really about not only digitizing geography, but also interactively 
then interacting with that data so that people can base their design on geographic understanding. By bringing this data together, you really understand how things are working in the natural world or in the, in the social world, and um, it allows you to uh, then make better decisions. For example, out in Cape Cod, they're doing a big geodesign process mm -hmm. uh, project out on the shoreline there because you know sea level rise is happening and they need to know what to design to be able to address or be resilient in the context mm -hmm. of this change. And they're doing some green infrastructure like restoring marshlands. And they're also building some hard gray infrastructure in the way of uh, you know walls that'll protect uh, flooding. And actually I'm from near there, the idea that you know, the beach on the ocean side is really eroding and that people, you know, that some of that will create encroachment of like seawater into people's drinking sources and things like that. You know, it's really complicated. And when you see it on the ground with people who've spent their lives there and want to continue to live there, it's uh, it's a difficult prospect and you have to figure some a variety of solutions out. I want to make sure we leave some time to talk about Geodesign's relationship to conservation of natural places. Who is the best person to, uh, to interact with on, on our mutual behalf, sir? Well, this gives me a great opportunity. You know, I'm a landscape architect, so I got sucked into this. Uh, <laughs> I still have landscape planning in my heart and soul. But my, one of my best friends and colleagues uh, is Ryan Perkle. And he's, I just want to bring him in. Please bring him in. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Ryan Perkle is a senior consultant and green infrastructure lead at Esri. Obviously, because we're in California, we're really pumped that you're focused on California's 30 by 30. 30 by 30. In 2020, California became the first state in the U.S. to pledge to conserve 30% of land and coastal water by 2030, joining 38 countries in commitment to conservation. We want to tell us a little bit about that and, and like why 30% is an important and crucial number. 30 by 30 rolls off your tongue a lot better than 26.6% by <laughs> yeah, 2027, true. right? Uh -huh. So that, that's part of it, probably, right? But really, there's a consensus amongst the scientific community that 30 to 50 percent of the planet is needed to be protected in order to preserve biodiversity. And when we're looking at our current protection efforts, they're simply not sufficient in preventing habitat and species decline to the degree that we need. Right now, for example, in our current circumstances, the scientific community estimates that there's as many as 150 species becoming extinct every day. And this is simply not sustainable. So 30-30 is one of the things we can do to help. What constitutes a green infrastructure as it relates to conservation? Green infrastructure is a network providing the ingredients for solving urban and climatic challenges by building with nature. Green infrastructure is really just simply a term used to describe open spaces like forests, prairies, wetlands, and rivers. But by calling it infrastructure, we're challenging people to think about it differently. We all know that we all value traditional infrastructure like roads, bridges, and buildings. So by thinking of the natural landscape as infrastructure, we're placing value on it, right? It's something that can be valued and planned for. I know that you guys work closely together. And what have you taken from Jack's leadership? Why does, how does this inspire you? And what is it that we, the, the lay person, can do to start really leaning into this kind of, of moral psychology? I think you nailed it, Robert, in that it's inspirational, right? I feel 
absolutely fortunate to work for an organization, a company like Esri that has leadership or that place that kind of emphasis on our natural landscapes and for the future, right? It's a true blessing to be able to work with folks like that, right? And fortunately, living in California, there's actually a lot of folks like Jack and Laura out there with the means to make similar conservation contributions. And that's a really exciting thing. But now for folks like myself, right, there are things that we can do as well, like Jack had just pointed out, that the little pieces also add up, and that's what it's really going to take. So folks that own a couple acres, that own 100 acres, through things like conservation easements, they can make the decision um, to protect portions of it. And as you have hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of individual property owners doing that, you start to get to some really intriguing land area that starts to make a difference. And it's going to take all of that. It's ultimately getting the sense and the spirit of it in every individual. Mm-hmm. That's ultimately what it gets to. So that people are not putting their footprint down on, on and destroying things more. So yeah. being able to own, own biodiversity conservation at that scale is, uh, is coming. It's really interesting, uh, sirs, to see you at this point in history with the opportunity and the leverage that you have And we'd love to do something when uh, time, energy, and circumstances permit to come see you. Sounds good. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very Uh, much. And you're going to be welcome to go out to the preserve, as we talked about. Okay. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bye, everyone. In some ways, CoveTool, the company co-founded by our guest, Sandeep Ahuja, is using technology to automate these kinds of designs to make buildings more energy efficient and sustainable. Sandeep, thank you so much. There she is. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is so cool. You founded Cove Tool, which we're very excited about. And I've been over and over the website. It's beautiful. It's so cool and functional. But can you just tell us how Cove Tool works generally? Super high level. Um, buildings are 40% of all carbon emissions. It's architects, engineers, contractors that need to all come together to figure out how to reduce the overall carbon emissions. The problem is that currently everybody works in a completely different way and everybody uses a different software, everybody uses a different workflow, and there's no way to really put it together. And that's what Cove Tool does. It would tell you how much energy is your building going to use, how much daylight are you going to have, how much glare are you going to have, and more importantly, how much is it going to cost and how can you balance that cost? kind of does that all real time, which is super exciting. So it's not quite Jarvis level, but it's, it's getting there. <laughs> well, look, it's real. So I want to know a little bit about just your origin story in this, uh, in this epic tale and then ultimately what series of events led you to start the company? Well, I became an architect and I wanted to be a sustainable architect to fight climate change. I realized I had no idea how to do that. So I became a sustainability expert, started my consulting practice with my co-founder and we could only do about 50 projects a year because that's how many two humans can do with a team manually. So we started writing little tiny scripts as part of our consulting practice and had my third co-founder, Daniel, to come collaborate with us and actually make a scalable app to solve the whole problem because 50 buildings done by a team of expensive consultants is not the solution to fighting climate change. For example, if if you're trying to 
optimize your house, you'd basically type in your address and the platform would automatically understand what are your local regulations, what kind of weather is prevalent, you know, where you're at, what are your neighbors' houses look like, where are they, how much shadow are they going to cast on your house, how does the sun move, and then it gives you real-time performance input, like does your kitchen have enough daylight if it's facing east, or should you spend money on getting better windows, or should you just spend money on getting solar panels, what is more cost-effective? And then if you set a target that, hey, I want to be carbon neutral, or hey, I just want to be just code minimum, or hey, I want to be 10% better, just wherever your spectrum is, it'll be like, okay, I've looked through a thousand options and the lowest cost way to get there is get better windows, put some shades on it, don't bother changing out your roof. And that is the most cost optimal solution. So it definitely pulls in a lot from what's already there and it just automates it. I really, really, really want to do any and everything I can to support this because these are the kinds of solutions that if all I have to do is is come to you, tell you where I am, and all of a sudden you're giving me a multiple choice menu of then re-empowering me to make the decisions based on my best thinking, it helps me feel smarter for having asked you to help me, which almost never happens. <laughs> What's the coolest thing someone's done with your software? Because we're going to beat it. We're going to be cooler. The coolest thing that I got to see, and maybe it's a little bit more personal to me, is uh, when my alma mater, Georgia Tech, they kind of came full circle. They uh, upgraded their student center and they upgraded with Cove Tool. And I thought what was interesting was that the platform gave them a recommendation that do not demo the existing student center, renovate it. Because not only was it going to be more cost effective, it was going to be more carbon efficient. Because, of course, the moment we take down what there is, the wasted the carbon for every single material building block that went into it. So it actually told them, open up some spaces, reuse part of it, demo some of it. And that is the most cost optimal, energy optimal solution. And I, I thought that was super cool. I couldn't agree with that more because sometimes you you're doing more damage in the short and midterm by thinking I need to start over. And I think that's really in some ways true for the challenge and the crisis is we don't need to change everything. We just need to change the right thing. How do you build this out? What's next? The way that I see a successful future is that every single building is designed with data. People are not guessing. We kind of don't have an option. We can't do it the old fashioned, bad, no data way. It's just like we have nutrition labels for every food product. We have nutrition labels for every building. Kropa, final word to you? I was going to ask, actually, if, if there's any sort of uh, trend that you see that, that people using this tool have said, oh, we must actually have this product or we must implement this specific thing. One thing I have definitely noticed is that, it, which is a really positive and exciting trend, is that it spreads really, really fast. For example... Firms that like architectural engineering firms or construction firms that have never thought about it or never considered incorporating data, when they dip their toe, like they'll they'll go in with a pinky and they'll dip the toe and they'll be like, hmm, okay, how warm is the water? And they, they'll dip the foot and then they'll jump right in. And it's like literally a two-month period from when a firm is like, are we interested? But the moment they start dipping their toe in because it is intuitive and it is easy to implement. 
people are implementing across every single project. And then we see data like a year later, like 99, 100% of a firm's projects were optimized, which is just so mind boggling and exciting for me. Cause it's like, yeah, last year you had zero. Now you have hundred percent. Yes, let's keep doing more. <laughs> Intuitive and easy to implement. Uh, nice. All right, well, I will continue taking notes and keeping tabs on you. Best to you and yours. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Great to see you. What an episode. Boy, oh boy. How do you even sum it up, Gropa? You know, we have the why of doing geodesign, and it's so important for us to measure twice and cut once, I think, when it comes to the environment. And this allows us to simulate and to model the things that we might do just to make sure there's no unforeseen consequences later. I think across all of them, we have our marching orders and we definitely know how this affects people's livelihoods and lives. So we are really excited to, uh, to be able to be connected to these folks. And we hope more of you and the listening audience will do the same thing. That's us out, sister. Let's do the virtual elbow, just like we always start where we started. Boop, boop, downstream. Gonna go downstream. Boop.